In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. So you're actually waiting around for uh, a trailer that's been delayed in GB, and I say GB yeah. simply because it's not Northern Ireland, yeah. mainland England. Yeah, exactly. And you're just waiting for it to come in. We're, it's actually it's it's in, but we're waiting for the customs to clear. It was supposed to be cleared this morning, but it's not cleared yet. How frustrating is it for you not to be able to deliver your load? Um, it's frustrating sitting around, but it's more frustrating for the customer waiting on the load. Like they're trying to, they're trying to work around you, which doesn't help. And what do you do all day, just sitting around? Sit and look at the phone, most of it. We knew Brexit was coming. We had a whole year to prepare. How come the logistics people weren't ready? big part is our government turn a blind eye to the haulage like our haulage end of it not just because I drive but our haulage end is a big part of our country where is home for you? Uh, Eden Derry County Offit oh, well I've been staying away from my father is, lives about 11 miles from me I haven't seen him since this started so 7 hours to 3 days waiting in Hollyhead 3 days in Hollyhead? yes 3 days waiting for customs here all the problems seem to be in Ireland. The problems are here? Yes, definitely here. Then you come off here and you go to T11, more problem, maybe six, seven hours waiting for you to let you go. On the ground, very impatient, getting no work done. And what about fresh produce? I notice a fridge. Are things lasting? It's difficult. So I know some companies that product has been dumped because it's sat for so long. What sort of stuff would get dumped? Fruit and veg. Just it's thrown away? Just thrown away, fresh. And these are tons of the stuff? Yeah, 19, 20 tonne per trailer. Just binned? Yeah, because yeah, of paperwork. So because of paperwork, I believe so. Yeah, 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 yeah. But they're saying the guy was coming saying that the trucks are getting through. But sure, the last ferry I was on, there was thirteen lorries on it. At the moment, they've made the Irish government seem to make the system far too complicated. Henry McKean reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, with the new Brexit arrangements, there's been a huge surge in Britons applying for non-UK passports. On Thursday, Pat Kenny spoke to Boris Johnson's father, Stanley Johnson, about his decision to apply for a French passport. Now, uh, you've uh, been talking about your French passport. You have an entitlement by uh, your lineage uh, to that passport. But more important, why do you want to have one? Is it simply to skip some of the queues? No, absolutely not. Actually, with a, with a middle name, which is Patrick, I could try for the Irish passport as well. Anyway, no, being 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 serious, not not with a view to skipping the queues. It, there's a, there's a couple of aspects here, Pat. It's it, sentimental, if you like. One of them, my mother was was born in in France. Her mother was French. Her grandparents were French. There's a whole array, as you said, of of French lineage there, and she she took it very, very seriously. Towards the end of her life, she grew up speaking French, and then towards the end of her life, she rather relapsed into that too. So there's a sentimental thing. And then I'd say there's a, a symbolic and symbolic aspect to this as well. You said, and you're right about that, that I voted Remain. I not only voted for Remain, I actually helped set up in the UK an organisation called Environmentalists for Europe. And we, we fought hard to try and make sure that the environmental outcomes were not affected by whether Britain left the, um, the EU. Well, we didn't win that. And after we, after the vote in 2016, I said that's the way the country voted, and, and therefore I supported um, leaving. That said, 
that said, I think that the crucial thing now that the Brexit deal is well and truly done, we've not only had the withdrawal agreement, we've had the EU-UK trade and cooperation agreement. Now that that deal is done, I think it is going to be tremendously important to build these bridges with Europe, as I said. A little thing I thought I could do in a symbolic way would be actually to um, say to the French, look, you, you say I'm French, well, please can I have the certificate? It actually mm. turns out this is slightly more complicated than you might think, because there's a very, very clear set of documents I was sent uh, that I had to produce, including things like my grandmother's birth certificate in Paris in, in, you know, in, in the last century, and so on and so forth. That exercise, and then to prove also uh, any, 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 any links we had in terms of, well, actually, my great aunt did have a, did have a, uh, some land in Cahors, in the, in the southwest region of France. That sort of thing is going ahead. So, yes, a symbolic and a sentimental journey. And, of course, you're right, there may be there may be some aspects in terms of facilitating one's life in Europe. Sure. And, and tell me this, moment, w- w- you, you no. also keep your UK passport, I presume. Oh, good heavens. <laughs> I just say in French, ça va sans dire. Yes, that is certainly, that is certainly the case. I don't, don't, think, don't think I'm in any way um, resiling from a, a Britishness here. No, hmm. of course I'm not. I, no, I do not know whether this this exercise will, you know, will come to fruition or not. But yes, I've done it, and there's no point trying to keep quiet about it. There are people out there who know who know what I'm doing, and in due course, the French authorities will put two and two together, and they'll say, well, who is this Stanley Johnson? Is he any relation to so on and so forth? Stanley Johnson from The Pat Kenny Show. On Friday, Sean McCreeve celebrated 20 years of Wikipedia with its founder, Jimmy Wales. And there was also, I mean, a concern, particularly in the early days, that because anybody could edit it, uh, Wikipedia uh, wasn't reliable, which has gone away now. Was there a kind of a calculation in your minds uh, that it would average out and, and, and it would become reliable? Well, we've always had the philosophy that we we need to leave Wikipedia better each day than the day before. So we're always looking to improve, always trying to make it better, make it high quality, make it neutral. But what I also say is we were never as bad as they uh, thought we were, and we're not as good as they think we are. So uh, there's been a bigger shift in the media than in reality. Uh, The truth is we know uh, we've still got a lot of work to do. Right. Okay. And is it possible to monitor every single Wikipedia page to to check it for accuracy? Well, I mean, the great thing about communities is that they inherently scale. So the more people you have editing, the more people you have editing. And so uh, we all keep an eye on each other and we give the editors all the tools they need to be able to monitor. And, uh, you know, people have watch lists and they have groups of people who go around and check up on certain areas that they're interested in. So it pretty well does scale in terms of people being able to keep an eye on things. Uh, on those uh, on controversial topics, on politics, are those pages then constantly being edited and re-edited? Constantly, yes. Uh, particularly things that are in the news. Uh, you know, there's always a new update. There's always new things going on. Um, and of course, certain topics, uh, hot topics, it's uh, important that we try to be as neutral as possible. But of course, we're human beings. So sometimes people get into disagreements and so forth. But we do have a strong spirit in the community that, you know, we shouldn't be like uh, Twitter or something like that. It's not just a place to come and bash each other and have 
Flame Wars, we've got a goal, which is to write an encyclopedia, and that kind of helps keep us on the straight and narrow. Mm. So, then again, in the in the, I've noticed that in the the sections where people discuss various edits, things can get pretty heated. Yeah, yeah, we're human beings, but <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's a complicated sometimes. Uh, but you know, there's a there's there's quite a good spirit in the community to say, okay, let's let's try to cool this down a bit. Let's you know, let's remember what we're here for. Uh, but, but I'm thinking particularly, though, of, you know, as uh, as you're, I'm sure you're very aware as well, uh, in, in, in the United States, particularly in the realm of politics, there are two competing versions of reality. And do those two versions of reality compete with each other on Wikipedia pages? Um, yeah, to a degree. But I mean, I think, uh, you know, normally what you can find is if you've got quality sources, they don't disagree as much as uh, as pundits like to think. Uh, on anyway, on the basic facts. Now, how you interpret those facts, that's a different matter. Uh, but we just try to stick to the facts. But say, for instance, is there a Wikipedia page that says that, 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 that uh, um, the election was stolen and there was all sorts of illegal balloting going on? There, there wouldn't be a page that says the election was stolen, but there will definitely be thorough coverage of the controversy. So explaining who's saying what, uh, what reasons they've given and so on and so forth. Um, and are there particular individuals who who've contributed contributed an awful lot to to edits over the years on on various pages? Oh yeah, I mean there are some people who have contributed un, untold numbers, uh, hundreds of thousands of edits, um, who are really really dedicated volunteers. There are people who specialize in certain arcane areas, and uh, you know you can imagine uh, you, you might not might not know it, but there are super geeks on almost any topic you care to think of. Uh, sometimes I'm <clears throat> reading Wikipedia myself and I'm like, this is amazing. Like who on earth bothered to write all this down? I'm so happy they did, but it's incredible. Yeah, because there is, isn't there a chap called Stephen Pruitt uh, who's made more than three million edits? Yeah, yeah, Stephen Pruitt is uh, pretty amazing. Uh, just a very, very, very busy guy. I don't even know how he does it myself. Yeah, I, who is he? What does he do? Does he have a day job? Uh, you know what? I actually don't know. That's a very good question. I mean, I, I know him uh, through Wikipedia, uh, Sir Amantio, we call him. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, I'm not actually sure. I don't know his personal life. I, it looks like we can read about it in Wikipedia now that I'm looking. Uh, yeah, he should have a Wikipedia page, <laughs> uh, uh, given the amount of work he's done. What an interesting guy. Wikipedia founder Jimmy Wells from Moncrief. Just actually on that and, and on other potential symptoms, Linda also yeah. joins us here too on the line. Linda, tell us about, um, well, what were your long COVID symptoms like? Hello, Andrea. How are you? Good. Thank you for letting me on the call yeah. today. Um, basically, I um, tested positive for COVID October the 10th last year. Um, I spent two weeks in isolation. I had a very high fever. I had no cough and I lost my taste and smell. And then since then... I've been basically battling the health service and the doctors to try and tell me why I'm not getting better. And it's just, I'm just fed up now at this stage and I feel there's no support. And I have been on every medicine under the sun. And I'm just recently, I, last week I got an MRI scan on my brain because my doctor now thinks I have had a stroke. And how, how are you coping with all of this, Linda? I'm not. Um, I'm a mom of three girls and I'm a grandmother of two little boys. I'm young. I'm only 45. I cycled up to 20k three times a week pre-October. I 
don't smoke. I don't really drink that much. I was very fit. I, I'm just very frightened. I, mm. I, because there's no what what's annoying me the most is that in the United States and New Zealand and America and Australia and England seem to have recognised that long COVID is a syndrome and a symptom. And people need help. It's can, not a two-week thing. Yeah. Can can you like? Are you diagnosed with long COVID? No. No one no. told me that, that that is actually a thing. I have to go to my doctor and tell him what I have. He's absolutely baffled every time I turn up that I'm still not better. Um. I'm every week. I do not know what symptom I'm going to have. It's different every week. The majority of my symptoms are chronic fatigue, muscular, um, there's a pain, I've had a pain in my rib cage, my right rib cage and my right arm since day one of being diagnosed and that has not gone away. That's very scary. And do you take anything for that? My doctor has given me painkillers. He has given me something for muscle-related injuries. He's given me something for nerves. He now thinks it's neurological He's given me something for pain relief, the very strongest painkillers, mm. and they did not work. And then coming up to Christmas, I lost my ability to speak properly, and that really, really oh, frightened me. I started to stammer, and my whole right side got very weak. So he, he organized an MRI brain scan, and I'm now awaiting results of that. So you're potentially being treated for, well, I suppose, assessed for a potential stroke. Stroke. And apparently, like Tanya, she's doing her research. I'm the same. I'm on pages every night trying to find out. I'm literally, it's almost like as if our long COVID group, which is now increasing daily. So the health service, Paul Reid and Stephen Donnelly should set up clinics. I mean, there's going to be thousands of people by the end of this who have a long COVID. So they, not just in Dublin, I'm, I live in the southeast, I live near Waterford. There's nothing available down here for me. Nothing whatsoever. I have to literally go to the doctor and say, mm-hmm. can you check me for, please check me for this. I ended up in A&E in November because I thought I was having a heart attack. My breathing got very, very fast. I clutching my chest. I went in. They did all blood tests, x-rays, chest x-rays, and every one of them were clear. I was baffled. It looked like I was going mad. Linda, who called Lunchtime Live on Monday afternoon. People's sleep has gone to hell in a handcart. Can they fix it? They can. Well, first of all, Kira, I think it's very understandable, isn't it? You know, we're living in such anxious times. You know, there's so many angles to this pandemic, you know, not just about the infections, but people have financial worries. People are worried about their friends and family. So anxiety is the problem here, you know, because anxiety prevents us from getting sleep. You know, it causes us to have sleep fragmentation. I don't know about you. Have you ever woken up some morning and actually felt sleepy? Every every morning, Annie. (laughs) I work on breakfast. I, I hear you, Kira, And, you know, one of the reasons for that is that we, we're, we're waking up during the nighttime and we sometimes we don't even know we're doing it. And then we're not getting that restart of sleep that we really need. And then there's a bit of a vicious cycle going on here as well, because 
you know, sleep deprivation causes us to be more anxious. So we might even overreact to some of the troubles that we're having. And that's preventing us from getting to sleep the next night. So it's, we are trying to, trying to break this vicious cycle, which is not necessarily that easy given the times that we're in. So what should people do? If you had some simple tips this morning, because we get a lot of texts about sleep, you know, simple things, what can they do? So I suppose the thing about it is you have to think about sleep being about the full 24 hours, not just the hour just before you go to bed, Kira. I think a lot of people just think that the things they do just before they go to bed is what's impacting their sleep. It's not. Sleep is a, is a, a holistic thing that the full 24 hours can impact on. And the biggest thing you can do, Kira, is to keep a regular schedule. And I suppose that's one of the big problems that we're seeing in the pandemic is that all our schedules have gone to, to hell in a handbasket, as, as you said yourself, because we don't have these regular things that were kind of keeping us in check before, such as, you know, those of us who are still lucky to have a job. Many of us are working from home. Of course, there's many people who don't have a job anymore. So that regularity of having to get up for work is no longer there. The kids aren't going to school. So that regular... Um, system of getting them up and going outside and that that's a big thing for our sleep Kira is actually morning light so getting a bit of morning light is absolutely key and we can do that no matter and what so our circumstances are. so is working are. from home then and homeschooling a problem because people sort of stumble down the stairs from their bedrooms to their kitchen maybe have a cup of tea or whatever and then maybe switch on the computer and they're not going outside to travel anywhere they're now? not go that's exactly it Kira. we've lost that um it's a cue, you know, going outside and getting this outdoor light. It's a cue to our body clock. And our body clock is really what's key to having good sleep. And just like with a nor we're basically like a big clock walking around the place, right? And just like well, a we clock, have hands and a face, I suppose. I, I'm with we, you. See, with we you. have all the features, Kira. We could keep going on with that conversation. <laughs> so we've all the features of a clock. But the thing about it is just like a clock needs a battery or needs a, a, a wound up mechanism, we need something to keep us in time. And what keeps us in time are these regular cues and outdoor light, especially in the morning, is a big cue for so our So even working clock. from home, go outside to your balcony, your garden, your front door, take and a few big breaths of fresh take air. Take a t- few yeah. big breaths. But even things, Kira, like which, I, which I'm beginning to think that we've lost as well, because we're not going out to work, we're not showering as much in the morning, are we? Kira, admit. I, I wouldn't like to right? say. <laughs> <laughs> we're not even probably washing our face with the same regularity. You know, we're not eating breakfast at the same time. Like you said, a lot of us are just sort of falling out of bed. So we're in this sort of this trance where there's no big difference so, between day so, and night. Some handy tips there from Anne Curtis from Youth Talk Breakfast. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk spoke to workers as well. What was their view? Yeah, workers, a lot of workers who live in Dublin are originally from rural Ireland. They're from rural Galway. They're from rural Cork. I met this man, a senior executive. He lives in Dublin, but he's a Galway man. He talks about broadband in rural Galway. It might not be up to scratch. Uh, So Dublin will always have an advantage. I'd certainly like the facility to work remotely and work from home, be it Galway or anywhere else. Yeah, I'd like the facility to work from home. Do you worry about job prospects and the fact that not being in the office, not being able to see people, you you could lose out? And at the end of the day, the money is still in Dublin, isn't it? Possibly, but I think there's a balance to be struck between being physically somewhere and presenteeism versus working remotely in teams. It's quite possible these days with good broadband to work remotely, to work collaboratively, but not necessarily be in the same room 
or the same atmosphere. So and you mentioned, you know, broadband, and that is an issue with that rollout. And parts of Galway still have very poor or no broadband whatsoever. What is the answer? Could you see this happening? Can you see 20% of civil servants working from home having that right? Do you think that could happen by this time next year? Well, I think the answer is acceleration of the NBI project. Um, I think now urban areas are fairly well served by broadband and the areas immediately around urban centres. Um, it's probably the more remote areas, the NBI project in particular. I think they need to accelerate that. I think they're talking about five or seven years of a timeline. That's got to improve. So. And at the moment, because of the pandemic, you're working from home? Yes, I have been since full-time since March the 13th. I have kids, one is 18, who's doing the Leaving Cert this year, so it's been stressful for him, trying to work out, is there going to be an exam, is there not being an exam? But personally, no, myself and my wife have been working from home. We have an office set up, a home office set up, so we work quite well in the same space. And there have been very, very few drawbacks. It'd be nice every now and again to sort of meet up as a team, but we've overcome the sort of distance issue by simply having decent broadband where I live. Um, with Teams, Microsoft Projects, Google Meets, there's any amount of tools out there to meet the needs. So people can work collaboratively at the same time, but not necessarily be in the same room. So I think that's less of an issue than it used to be. Henry, you, you touched on it there. Like, What about the things that you only get in the office, that interaction mm. and a bit of crack as well? Yeah, I miss that. I miss the crack. I miss the high fiving. Obviously, we can't do high fiving at the moment because of the pandemic. But I have a lot of friends. They want to get away from their wives and children. They want to get into the office. (laughs) They're sick of being at home. Uh, They want to have the banter. They want the team building. Um, uh, They actually enjoy it. Uh, So, uh, you know, I, I can understand. Or Sorry, can just understand. to clarify, Henry, friends of yours. You're not talking about yourself, of course. No, no, no. I'm, t- I'm talking about my friends. I, 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 sure. I, uh, sure. I enjoy uh, yeah. being able to um, work from home. Um, <laughs> but yeah, under the strategy, the government will also commit to investing in remote work hubs around the country. And obviously, these work hubs are very popular in Dublin before the pandemic and in London and in New York. Uh, and they're going to try and uh, wheel these out. And so these are basically... Uh, a bit like WeWork. Uh, so they're going to come out. Um, so that looks interesting. But team building, team building. A lot of officers love this stuff. Uh, here is Orange Works. They are a team building company and they specialize in face-to-face events, um, but they're now virtual. Um, here is uh, Oren Masterson. You know, sitting around a campfire in the middle of a broadleaf oak forest uh, to really connect on a physical level with your team members, you know, with all the best intentions in the world, it is difficult to replicate that type of experience or any outdoor team experience um, on a platform like Zoom uh, with a virtual audience. We feel people will want to reconnect on a physical level when restrictions lift and it is safe to do so again uh, as meetings virtually um, they just you know don't happen to have the same success online. We feel that people uh, you know they will begin to feel isolated again and disconnected uh, if they do not meet in person. Uh, We will have our boots back on the ground to meet our clients again when we are permitted to do so. Um, And, you know, we as a team ourselves have been working so closely with each other while remotely since March of last year. Uh, We have found it ourselves critical to really keep in in, in contact with each other and keep the connection going uh, through our own in-house team activities. There will be an onus um, on management to really get teams to reconnect and not feel isolated in, in the months ahead. A lot of people, depending on their learning style, will feed off the energy of others. So extroverts, uh, for example, will feed off the energy of others. You know, they may struggle in a, in a lockdown situation where they're not physically around other people. 
whereas introverts by their design generally work better in isolation but it's a situation where you know it is beneficial for us all uh, and everyone to meet up in a physical setting. Henry McKean there reporting from the Heart Childer with Kieran Cudahy. On Saturday, Down to Business explores the importance of laughter in business relationships. Here's the host of the Humorology podcast, Paul Boros. There's really a, a time and a place for it. I, I remember being at a board meeting one time and somebody said, oh, well, should we have to have a bit of fun at work? And the chairman of the company said to him, well, so you're laughing at the shareholder. And there was a kind of an awkward silence. And he he just felt that he, he just couldn't see that it was OK for people to have, you know, a lightness and to bring humour into the workplace. He saw it as somebody laughing at him. Well, that, that's the you have to find a balance, Bobby, between gravity and levity, you know, and but I think levity should always be there. And I think it was Dwight D. Eisenhower who said uh, a sense of humour is part of the art of leadership, of getting along with people, of getting things done. And I think that's so important. I think attitude in business is is what leads to altitude, if you like, you know, to, to make it really great. Very successful businessmen like yourself get that attitude right. And and I think sometimes people are afraid to bring it in because they go, business is serious. You know, you can't do that. But actually, all the science now backs up the fact that actually the lightness of touch helps with everything. Less stress, you know, it, you can be more creative when you've got less stress. And, and people who work for you will take good risks. Isn't there an element also of sort of positivity around leadership about people who are able to laugh at themselves. In other words, they, if one has that ability, one standing can go up quite significantly in the office place. I, I think that's very true. And every big business person I've worked with, and I've worked with some very, very high-profile people, has always had that ability. Because if you can't break your own bubble of pomposity if you like you know how do you expect others to so it leaders need to lead with laughter as well as everything else be the first to laugh at yourself by the way if you can't do it how can you expect other people to do it and what i always say to people is that 85 percent of your success in life is down to the quality of your relationships so it's not, you know, how how good you are at every aspect of, you know, understanding how accounts works. It's actually how you actually relate to other people. And that's the most important thing. And that's what the Humorology Project is trying to do is bring that into business so people understand that you do need some lightness. You do need some levity. I have an interesting text in from Mark that says, I have a boss who's always making jokes and most of them aren't funny. Be careful with the funnies, he says. So you actually, <laughs> you actually have to be funny. That's, that's one of the tricks, Paul. 
Well, yeah, and 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 also, yeah, that is that is one of the basics, Bobby. Um, but but also, it's the right kind of humour, Bobby. We know that you know humour can sort of you know put people down, and we want to avoid that kind of humour that that makes people feel bad. That actually is not inclusive. You can tease, but if you're bullying with your humour, that's not good. And also, like you said, if you're not funny, um, please stop it now. Leave it to somebody else. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the interesting things that, that, that you mentioned somewhere was that you, when you're entertained and you're laughing, you're 64% more likely to remember. And I thought that was interesting that the the the, the sort of correlation between laughing and actually making something memorable is is very positive. Yeah, absolutely. And and what you want is a relaxed state. You know, I I always say to people that when you go to see a movie, when we used to go and see a movie, um, but you'd be in a relaxed state and you could remember everything about the movie because you were in a relaxed state. Well, laughter... And and good humour releases a range of hormones um, in in the brain. You know the dopamine, the happiness, the oxytocin, the trust drug, and the endorphins to make you feel good. So when you're feeling good, you can you are more relaxed, and you will retain more information. Author, motivator, and business coach Paul Boris from Down to Business with Bobby Kerr, and of course you can tune into Bobby every Saturday afternoon from ten till twelve. We were talking to Joanna Fortune for our parenting slot uh, for the last half an hour or so. And uh, Mel says uh, maybe the, an, uh, in relation to the two-year-old who keeps uh, taking nappies out of the bin and uh, hiding them around the house, Mel says maybe he doesn't get the stink the same way and doesn't get the dirtiness of it all. Well, no, he wouldn't. And as Joanna said, uh, kids that age, and he's only two. Uh, are, are kind of fascinated uh, by poo and, and things kind of uh, stinky. Uh, someone else says, common sense, just put them in the black bin yourself. Well, yes, uh, that obviously is common sense. But, you know, in the moment, it might be difficult when you've got uh, two kids running around the house, uh, especially if uh, there's only one parent in the house at any given time. Uh, you mightn't have the chance uh, to run out to the back garden or wherever uh, the big bin is. A uh, lot of reaction as well uh, to the question that came in. Uh, for Joanna from uh, the mother whose seven-year-old keeps saying, I hate you. She's been doing a lot uh, of this since uh, since before Christmas. Uh, that 40-year-old woman shouldn't beat herself up about telling her mother... Uh, she Now, this is a reaction to that one woman texting to say how much she used to tell her mother she hated her. Now, that 40-year-old woman shouldn't beat herself up about telling her mother she hated her because of the incredibly long stretch of an Irish summer evening. My nine-year-old and even my 11-year-old have been flabbergasted many times at bedtime uh, because of the light outside when it's not even the height of the summer. Uh, I've just laughed and told them uh, about midsummer sunset times. I don't think uh, parents a generation back were as good at laughing at ridiculous things, especially when giving out was a preferred option. I'm going by my own experience, uh, they say. Uh, Linda says, I hated my mother in my teens, mainly due to the restraint she put on my social life. I swore I wouldn't be like that as a mother. I now have a 15-year-old. I'm doing exactly the same as my mother did. I get it now, uh, says Linda. I suppose because... You can remember uh, that uh, uh, all the things you wanted to do or or you would have done uh, if you got the chance. Uh, On the the same subject, uh, somebody else says, we all hated our mothers at one stage or another, but you soon realise your world won't turn without them, even into your 30s and 40s. Well, that 
you know, in an ideal set of, uh, of circumstances. And it's not always uh, that, but what tends to happen is that uh, there's a lot of friction when they're younger, especially with uh, with girls and the mothers, and then they turned into, uh, turn into great friends uh, later on in life. It's good to be wise when you're young Cause you can only be young but for once Wonderful Prince Buster has heard on the Tom Dunn Show. And Linda, you, you, know, really you, you so spoke alive. to us, I you know, and I can I can hear it, I can appreciate it, and I think our listeners can as well. You told us last week that, that look, you're you're counted as an essential worker. You have to work. Like how how have you found? How have you managed the last few days? Well, I just want to clarify something, Karen. A lot of teachers and SNAs and other people, okay, are saying teachers are not child-minded. Nobody minds my child when I'm a mock. His father minds him. His father has to leave work back in July because we used to have to drive around every night out and host for three and a half to four hours every night. on the bus and the teachers have to take them off. Well, just let me say, them teachers accepted Christmas presents of them kids that were coming from the houses. They weren't worried then. And they're talking about the masks. The, the kids keep on pulling the masks off. Yeah. But come in, I tell you, I'm a mug. I have to wear a mask, surely. And then they're saying they're not provided with proper PPE gear. 
Kieran, I'm walking Carbies and Cooler. We're all walking since last March. We're essential workers. We have to walk. Now, if we cannot walk, to say, due to, we've known to mind kids or something, we we don't have, we be told, okay, do you understand their circumstances? But you will have to correct the call for payment. I know teachers out there, they have children. I understand that. But the way I'm, what the message I'm getting there across is one size fits all now as regards them teachers are concerned. They will not go back until all the schools are back. So I just want to know, is it safety measures? Or is it child minding for them teachers? I mean, yeah. whether my child is in school or not here on, I still have to go to work. I haven't missed work yeah. to all this since last month. You know, I understand. I can understand both sides. But let me tell you, Kieran, as I said to you last week, it's like a living hell. And I'm only one family talking. And there's thousands of families out there. And put that in perspective, I'm actually lucky because I can go to work. Air life is hell. I mean, we drive around the weekends three and four hours out to host. At stages, we don't even know where we're driving to. Everything in my house is broke. Honest to God. And this is down to the fourth lockdown. Now, I have to say, I'm very annoyed. And I'm going to think trying to get legal advice because... If the teachers can say they're not safe going to work, am I not safe going to work? But as regards, I'm going to fight for my son's education because he has a right. And these are vulnerable children we're talking about. Yeah. And they are just neglected. I said to you last week, Tira, they're left aside. So who's to blame? Who is to blame? From The Heart Shoulder with Kieran Cudahy. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. We're here from the National Guard of Pennsylvania. We're just here to ensure public safety, uh, safety for the people and the property, and make sure everything goes smoothly. Yeah. What's your hope for a Biden presidency? I hope, um, I hope he changed because uh, he wasn't too good for black people either when he was um, like in office before. Not not presidency, but like in the Senate and stuff. So uh, I just hope he do good by because he locked us up. You know what I mean? In the past. Well, when I was a kid in school, my father told me, um, if I don't use my rights to free speech and to due process, I could lose it. I could lose those rights. And I was I was here protesting the Vietnam War while I was still in high school. Do you think President Trump should be impeached? Oh, yeah. Yes, uh, I think it's too late, but I guess the whole idea is just to make sure he doesn't get reelected uh, for any any office or once again go to be a president of the United States. But uh, I think at this point it's too late. I think the more focus should be on unite the country, which is going to be a really difficult. Uh, it'll be difficult for the president coming in. Are you looking forward to a Biden presidency? Not particularly, no, ma'am. But I'm looking forward to being able to provide for my family without having to jump through hoops. From News Talk Breakfast. Now listen, your favourite movie, it's a humdinger. Will you tell our listeners what you've opted for? Yeah, the, the it's nothing pretentious. It certainly I'm not isn't. That kind of, I'm not that kind of person. Um, it's a Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Oh, wonderful. Never trust anybody that doesn't like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. You know, that's a good way to live your life, I would suggest. Yeah. Why do you love it? Um, nostalgia reasons, uh, obviously. Um, I saw it when it came out. I was the same age as Ferris Bueller uh-huh. when it came out. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I just, I, I don't think it's aged, to be perfectly honest. It's... Um, 
I love the relationship with him and Cameron. Uh, mm. I love Cameron's relationship with his dad, who you never, ever see. Um, but you know all about him just from the car. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the relationship with his girlfriend. Um, it, there's nothing, you know, it's not, I think if that was made today, it would be a lot sexier, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And him and the girlfriend. And it's not, it's just, they're just boyfriend and girlfriend and that's it. And also, he's the type of person I would have hated in real life. <laughs> But for some reason, you root for him all the way through it, the same as everybody else in the school. Oh, and his sister, who is one of the best characters ever. Yeah, she hates him, but then ultimately yes. does right by him. Yeah, yeah. Which is it's kind fantastic. of what siblings are meant to be about, I guess, you know. Yeah. And the scene with her and Charlie Sheen um, when they're in the police station and he's the bad boy that just flirts with her without saying very much. Yeah. And then he says oh you're first Bueller's sister and uh she loses it you know but it's it's the embarrassment thing which she's at the top of the stairs with her mom and her mom says come on we'll have to go and it's, there's a face that she pulls it's just absolutely amazing and of course there's the school principal or the teacher who's kind oh. of his sworn enemy is another great character in it as well it's brilliant and there's so much stuff in it and the uh the the guys in the multi-story that go for the joyride in the car yeah. uh the 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 uh the parade and the singing in the parade. Is oh yeah, twist and shout, right? Yeah, absolutely immense. It's it's fantastic. How they shot that? I looked up how they shot it once, and I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> yeah, damn, that's right. Uh, but they did. They actually shot it on the on the day of a of a massive parade. They didn't put the parade on. It was some huge big parade, and uh, stuck him in the back of a, a truck and just said, "Go for it." And uh, he just improvised and messed around and. and all the cutaways were done separately. Yeah. And of course, there's the famous, and you mentioned Cameron and all that, but the car going through the window, yeah. his dad's car, that's kind of like the the release of the movie or something. I remember seeing that for the first time as well, going, oh my God, the car went through the thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's brilliant. It's it's because it's as much as about Cameron as it is about Ferris. Yeah. And the daddy you know, issues. Yeah. He's a button down sort of a guy. And his, you know, when he has a whole speech in it about how his whole life's going to be mapped out for him and all this. And, uh, you know, he just needed that little poke to be his own man kind of thing. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's just a fantastic film. It's just such it a pretty good film. It's brilliant. Um, Have you shown it to your kids? Oh, God, yeah. The, the, since <laughs> my kids live in uh, an alternate universe, they... <laughs> they um, they we, didn't, we only have one TV in the house. Well, okay. Um, so... I dictate what they watch. <laughs> they must love um, that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, they lived in a, in a retro world for a long, long, long time. Um, but they're very good taste in movies now okay. because of it. Comedian Colin Murphy from Screen Time with John Fardy. And of course, you can tune into John every Saturday evening from six till seven. On Sunday, Alive and Kicking explored the importance of creating contentment in our daily lives. But let's go back to your lovely book. I don't want to give away all of the truths, but I do think another brilliant one is focusing on being content rather than being happy. And I I think the conversation is changing, but I don't think we talk about that enough. We're kind of sold this idea that if you're doing life right, you should feel sunshine and rainbows 24-7. And if you're not, there's something wrong with you. Whereas just the way sadness can come and go, happiness comes and goes as well. If you're feeling okay most of the time, you're doing great. 
Exactly. So I wanted to first reject this idea of happiness because that's very much like isolated spikes of happiness that we experience when we have something really amazing happen in our life, such as the birth of a baby, or maybe you've had a really particularly great day at work. And, you know, it's not sustainable. You can't stay at that high the whole time. Um, and that's not the goal. For me, when we talk about happiness and trying to achieve that general sort of feeling of satisfaction with our day to day, what we're talking about is contentment. And what I try to do with that chapter is to I suppose, temper people's expectations around happiness. And the goal is to help fortify your contentment baseline. And with that, we look at everything from your your perspective, your state of mind, your biological circumstance, your social circumstance. And I've got a very fancy looking Venn diagram there in that chapter. And it's really a, the source of your contentment is comes down to your biopsychosocial unit or your marker that sounds very complicated but um it's really just looking at all the different things in your life that come together to help form your contentment baseline and when you can work towards that everything gets a little bit easier you raise that baseline you become a little bit more resilient you bounce back from hard times easier and yes the happiness spikes still come and they're great but it's not something that you're searching for while feeling really crap in the process of some interesting insights there from Caroline Foran from Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. And of course, you can tune into Claire every Sunday morning from 9 till 10. OK, I'm going to leave you with now the great own Sheen and off the ball's crappy quiz. Have a great weekend. Our winner tonight will be, uh, I'll go get to the coin toss in just a moment. Our winner tonight will be decided in the round that separates the men from the boys, the James Hardens from the James Camerons. It's an O team in particular, ridiculously easy rapid fire round. So the score you get in this round will be added to your score in the previous round. We're going to put 40 seconds on the clock. Everyone has to answer from the same set of questions. You get a point if you answer one correctly and you keep going until you get one wrong. And once you get one wrong, you will be deducted a point. So in first place here is Jer. In second place is Tommy. Uh, yes. From the, the coin we tossed earlier on, and Adrian, <laughs> you're in last. So, Jerry, you ready? Come on, Jerry, don't mess this up, man. I can, I'm blowed from here, Jerry, surely. My best thing to do is actually get the first one wrong and then just sit back, relax. What's no, absolutely. My, what's my lead? <laughs> yeah, Sorry, what's my lead? Four. Oh, it's not that big. Okay. And how long oh, is question is always the toughest as well. Right, let's go. Your 40 seconds starts now. In what year will the next Women's European Championships take place? Next year. Correct. Timothy Fosu Mensa joined which Bundesliga club this week? I can't hear him because he said... Timothy Fosu Mensa joined which Bundesliga club this week? Uh, uh, Gladbach. No. Alan Brown played for which League of Ireland club before joining Preston, Tommy? Cork City. Correct. Who was mad at the match in the All-Ireland Hurling final last year? Uh, Too long. Uh, Adrian, uh, name any goal scorer in the 1986 World Cup final. Maradona. No. True or false? Munster are currently top of their Heineken Champions Cup group, Jer. False. Uh, true. Yeah, correct. Sorry. Uh, Joe Allen. <laughs> uh, it's all over. <laughs> all over. Shit is round ever. I probably had a chance if I got Hegarty, did I? I probably didn't have a chance if I got Hegarty. No, because you would have got the next question wrong. Yeah, I, I think you might have. 1986. Jer, uh, well done. That's our first crappy quiz of 2021. Not uh, even a battle. The, the champion. Not even a battle. I didn't, I didn't lay a glove on him. Get Nathan on next week. That was poor. I'll even give up my own place. That was shocking stuff. <laughs> In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk.